This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Hiromu Nagahara, Associate Professor of History in the Department of History at MIT. Dr. Nagahara is the author of Tokyo Boogie Woogie, Japan's Pop Era and Its Discontents, published by Harvard University Press in 2017. Dr. Nagahara, thank you for talking to me today. Thank you so much, Tristan, for having me. In your book, Tokyo Boogie Woogie, named, of course, after the song from the post-war period, you also talk about some of the origins of popular music in the Meiji period. So could you describe what's going on in the Meiji period in terms of popular music and how this sets up for the story you tell in your book? Yeah, and I think it's a story that's not just specific to popular music as we come to know it, but more broadly about music itself. I think one of the things that happens in the wake of the Meiji Restoration and the subsequent efforts at what turned out to be creating a national education system and various other institutions of modernity in Japan, one of the things that also emerged was the very notion of music as a uh, universal category, as a category of all the sort of different kinds of sounds that were being produced in the context of Japanese society. And that category, I think historians, including the musicologist uh, Hosoka Shuhei, have made it an argument convincingly that that really didn't exist before the Meiji era in Japan, where a lot of different kinds of music, you know, in the pre-modern Japanese era, uh, what we would consider to be music were sounds that were produced in various different social political contexts, in temples, in shrines, in in the court, in, in, in shogun's uh, in the shogun's palace and things like that, uh, or on the streets. And these things were conceptualized not as constituting a unified cultural phenomenon, right? They were considered to be a different sort of belonging to different realms and spheres of society and political life. But it's really starting in the major period that, that the very notion of music as a universal phenomenon, which was drawn, I think, primarily in this context from Western aesthetic notions, really came to four, primarily in the context of the Meiji state ultimately deciding in the early 1870s to introduce music education into the national education curriculum, but also in realms like the national military adopting Western marching music, or perhaps outside the realm of the state in contexts like missionaries using Christian hymns. And eventually, through industrial or commercial context when companies like Victor or Columbia or their predecessors uh, begin to come into the Japanese market. So it's really actually starting in the Meiji period that people began to talk about, debate about, think about what music is, what kind of music is desirable, what kind of music is desirable for students, what kind of music is desirable for the nation, for the citizenry? That's a really big question that's at the forefront of the mind of uh, education ministry bureaucrats who are trying to create a national musical curriculum, education curriculum for the first time. And at that point, popular music actually figures 
I argue in my book, as the kind of notional enemy for the Japanese music education system. Because what they articulate, especially in the sort of early discussions about what kind of music do they want to promote, they start by saying, well, there are these kind of musics out in the street that we want to counter against, the, what they consider to be vulgar, low, amoral, or immoral music uh, that they felt were preventing Japanese from becoming sort of a unified nation, of, of becoming a respectable citizen. And so they're, in some sense, in trying to create a, a national music, as they called it, kokugaku, one of the things that they first identified was that there, there were all these zokkyoku, popular music, vulgar music, that they wanted to not necessarily do away with, but in fact to reform and, and to create a kind of musical culture that actually could be and should be shared by all Japanese, whatever their status, whatever their location. And I think one of the writings literally said, a song that could be sung by everyone at any time in the, in the public sphere uh, without embarrassment. So there was a sense that there were certain kinds of undesirable sounds, undesirable music that had already existed, perhaps since you know the pre-modern era, uh, and that something about music in the context of modernity had to be universal, had to be different. And so at this point, really, they're not even talking about what kind of popular music do they want, but really they see music as a replacement to the kind of popular culture that existed in the immediate past in the, in the Edo period. And perhaps speaking of this song that everybody can sing together, perhaps the pinnacle of this formation of a new national music is the national anthem. Yeah, so that's part of the picture. There's a lot of different versions of the national anthem, the Kimigayo, that was eventually developed. And I would say that I think ultimately what they settled on was a mix of a line from, I think it's from Mayoshu, if I'm not mistaken, and from, from a music that is vaguely Gagaku-esque, but also Western and its sort of organization. But perhaps a more apt example of the kind of music that they envisioned were the so-called gakko shoka, or the school songs. And these are still actually classics, some of the classics to this day. The most famous one is Hotari no Hikari, The Light of the Fireflies. Which is a song that's set to the tune of Auld Lang Syne. And it's a song that was introduced in the Meiji era in one of the, I think, perhaps in the very first school songbook that was published by the Education Ministry, and that had become so indigenized to the extent that there was a moment in the wartime when the Japanese government decided to ban Anglo-American songs, that Tojo Hideki, the then Prime Minister, was informed that Kotari no Hikari was included in the banned song because of its connection to Old Lang Syne and that he was baffled and displeased. And, and if, uh, I'm not sure if that's entirely apocryphal, but, but I've heard sort of similar reactions actually about this song of, you know, Japanese people being surprised that this wasn't, quote-unquote, a Japanese tune. So uh, maybe this is in some sense a sign of success, but these are songs that are oftentimes, in fact, this is the, the method that they take. They take some kind of native text and fuse it with different kinds of Western tunes. And along those same lines, you mentioned the anecdote about the new Japanese military needs to have a modern marching band because all militaries have marching bands. So bring in, <laughs> bring in an Oyatoi advisor to teach everyone how to play John Philip Sousa marches or something like this. But it fits so well into this narrative of westernization 
in the early Meiji period. But you mentioned as well that there is this more domestic music. Is there kind of conflict between the two musics? Can we see that maybe this domestic music as as somewhat subversive or antithetical to the regime? Yeah, and I, I think that's definitely possible, and at least in two different ways. One of the ways that I talk about and perhaps emphasize a little bit more in the book is it, in some sense, goes along with what I just said earlier about what the national education bureaucrats had in mind when they were trying to create musical educational curriculum. And this idea that the local indigenous popular music or popular songs, or what we would at least consider to be, were somehow inherently vulgar, déclassé, and perhaps even irredeemable. And part of this, and this is something that some of the sort of elite samurai observers of the Meiji era noted that they not only had a kind of bias against popular music or the kind of music that the commoners would have listened to and enjoyed to in the Tokuga period, uh, but that music and dancing more broadly were things that they saw with wariness or with with a sense of moral dubiousness. And, and for example, Kikawa Chokichi, who is one of the first Japanese undergraduates at Harvard College, the son of the daimyo of Iwakuni Domain, which was the subdomain of Choshu Domain, you know, goes to Boston in the 1870s. And in his English language memoir, he notes how he and his Japanese colleagues at the schools that they attended to in the, in the run-up to going to Harvard uh, that in, in Boston, that they expressly asked to be spared from taking music classes and dancing classes, that these were something that they felt. And in his words, he talks about it as, quote, we had this old Japanese notion, end quote, that these things were not for them, not for self-respecting samurai males. You know, on the other hand, I don't want to overemphasize this because there are plenty of records and historians of Edo musical culture have noted, in fact, that plenty of samurai enjoyed so-called vulgar, commoner music and other kinds of popular culture. So, you know, I don't want to sort of overemphasize the kind of rigid hierarchy and division and things like that. But on the other hand, it seems to be that, especially for some of the more elite samurai, that there was a kind of discomfort that they had with music and perhaps the more physical sort of dancing as a kind of pursuit, a leisure, entertainment that they can do without being embarrassed. They can do outside of the closed doors of Ozashiki. That, that's something that they can actually, they're, that they're expected to do publicly. And of course, this is actually connected in some sense to the reason why the military ends up adopting Western march music, which is that in their encounter with Western military, and they, they, they see music having a sort of place of pride, a place of honor, as a, or as a being an essential element in diplomatic ceremonies, in diplomatic intercourses. And in a similar way, these samurai elite who go overseas, United States to Europe, you know, in the years actually even before 1868, and but especially after that in 1870s, and the Iwakura Embassy is the most symbolic example of this, they encounter music having a, not only having a sort of prominence that and a kind of official recognition that perhaps they weren't used to, but that they also see that music seems to have particular purpose in, uh, in fostering nationalism in encouraging patriotism and, and sort of perhaps even directly affecting people's emotion. Uh, one of the things that I talk about in my book is the fact that how the Iwakura Embassy, when they go to Boston, they encounter this massive musical festival 
I think the official title was something along the lines of International Peace and Jubilee Festival, which was this very curious event that took place on two occasions in early, I think once in 1868, eight or nine, and the second one when the embassy was traveling through Boston. And this was this massive temporary structure that was built in the Back Bay section of Boston, which was then kind of a recently created landfill area. And they created this massive sort of concert hall where they featured choirs that were made up of 10,000 singers and, and, you know, massive bands and orchestras that would perform not just American music, but, you know, the sort of the best hits from Western classical traditions. On particular, in the occasion that the Iwakura Embassy was going through Boston, the music festival was actually a very consciously nationally minded or internationally minded. So they would have the British Day or the German Day and of course the American Day where they would feature national songs or nationalist songs from these countries, including the national anthems, which certainly seems to have quite an effect on Kume Kunitake, the official chronicler of the Iwakura Embassy, who observed this and especially noted the seeming patriotic efficacy of this kind of culture. It's funny you mentioned that. I was, I was reading about the Iwakura Embassy's arrival in San Francisco. And in, even in the San Francisco Bulletin, it, it notes that there's a military marching band outside their hotel, right. kind of regaling them with these military marches. And then I think it's Iwakura goes out on the balcony and gives this great speech and everything. But at the same time, music is often a way for people to give voice to their discontent, as, as you've Absolutely. also written about. So in the 50s, and especially in the 60s in Japan, we talk about the guerrilla folk movement and other types of popular songs that it can be seen as kind of counterculture songs. Do we see the same, perhaps in earlier examples of protest movements in Japan? And I, I'm thinking specifically of the, the popular rights movement. Are there songs from this time period that we could also look at as voicings of discontentment in the Meiji period? Absolutely. And I think the popular rights movement, the Jiu Mike Udo, is the immediate, I think, context when one of the earliest of these kind of protest songs or songs that critique the government begin to emerge. So, you know, we're talking about mostly in, in the 1880s. And this coincided with a period in, I think, Japanese musical culture where there were these sort of street singer-songwriters, people who were known as enkashi. And, and this is actually sort of where the term originally, the term enka comes from. Enka nowadays is, I think, known for more of its post-war version uh, which is a very different kind of thing. But the Meiji era, Enkashi was sort of, you know, uh, iconically these uh, mostly men who went around the streets of Tokyo or other parts of Japan, oftentimes with a violin, playing songs and selling sheets with lyrics or music on them, oftentimes singing a sort of a harmless, popular ditty, you know, fashionable songs. At this period, they use the term Hayariuta to sort of designate these kind of Songs that were, you know, not necessarily long-lasting, but songs that uh, kind of spoke to the particular period that it was produced. And in that context, then, you start to see some of the songs that, you know, talk about specifically about democracy, or I think there was even one called Dynamite Don, Dynamite Bang, which uh, I think was frowned upon because it has to do with terrorism, per se. So, you know, this was one of the creative, I think, one of the more creative avenues of the sort of intersection of Jiu, Minken Udo, and sort of grassroots 
popular musical endeavors. Ultimately, it's known for people like Soeda Azembo, who is sort of known as one of the most prominent and prolific of these. And by the time you get to Soeda Azembo's time, though, he was probably only a kid during the Jiu Minkian era. It becomes a little bit more commercialized, a little bit more organized, a little less politically efficacious. And I think later on, you know, in terms of more sort of politically specific music, there are efforts by, for example, communists to sort of create a proletarian musical culture. Although my impression of it, especially in, in contrast to, say, proletarian literature movement, is that they, they didn't nearly take off or become as much of a thing uh, as their literary counterpart. I think actually the main ways in which popular music was deemed to be a threat to social political order was in fact less in its sort of overtly political guise, but in more of what I already mentioned about sort of was the concern of major bureaucrats, right? About that there were music could be a pathway to encourage patriotism and national mindedness, but it could it more easily or more typically was seen to be an expression or, or manifestation of vulgarity and, and social decadence and immorality. And that concern, you know, continues to exist, I think, into in the minds of policymakers, police authorities, so forth. And so when phonograph records actually begin to be censored for the first time, this is in uh, 1934. The main concern is less that these songs are communist or these songs are somehow politically inflected, but that they are perhaps overtly sexual, that they might have elements that, de- that, that either through texts that are inappropriate or even ways of singing that are suggestive, erotic even. And one of the mo- most famous or infamous from the police perspective example of this was a song called Wasurecha Iyayo, Don't You Forget Me, by a singer named Watanabe Hamako. This was a song about imploring a lover not to forget her, and there's a line that even goes something along the lines of Wasurecha so the censor described it as overly sweet and evokes an image of a, a woman enticing a man was literally uh, something that he wrote in one of the reports. And so I think the way in which music was potentially subversive was more along the lines of sort of what in the censorship, actually, the category that this fell under was of manners and morals, huzoku, as opposed to security considerations. It's amazing that they found that to be deviant, even that kind of arguably suggestive line. But I mean, I'm thinking back to at least these songs that I think of from the 1880s and Christine Yano has written about this, where you know, people criticizing democracy, as you mentioned, songs by Ueki Emori that are kind of promoting Jiu Minkenundo, Demokrashi Bushi, which is all about, you know, who is it that builds the battleships, but we still don't get the vote? Who is it that harvest the rice, but we still don't get the vote. These very, think of very satirical, overtly subversive songs. And then by the 19 teens, there's like the, the Tokyo March song, 
which is, is somewhat critical of urbanization and cosmopolitanism in the city. But then by the time we get to, like you mentioned, the 1930s and I would say even the 1950s and 60s, that kind of outright overt criticism kind of disappears, doesn't it? Absolutely. Uh, and in fact, that's actually one of the complaints less from the authorities, you know, on the one hand, who were concerned about the moral implications of it, but on the other hand, I think minded less that there were there was not much of a political content, but from, say, a more progressive critical perspective, right? So from advocates of proletarian musical movement in, in the pre-war movement or in, in, even in the immediate post-war era, uh, critics among the resurgent left noted, and, you know, in many ways rightly, that these songs did not seem to encourage critical political consciousness. Uh, that, if anything, that these songs perhaps was a way of served in a kind of a passive negative way as a kind of emotional outlet for the oppressed masses uh, where they were encouraged to indulge in their sentimentality, in their oppression, not through sort of positive political action, but by simply resigning. Uh, and sort of this idea that popular song encouraged unproductive sentimentality, resignation, and were filled with keywords like Tameiki, sighing, namida, right, tears. These kind of actually critiques become fairly common, especially on the, the more progressive end of cultural observers, mass culture critics, you know, including even some of the people who you think would be more positively inclined towards mass culture, like the people who were involved in Tsunami Shinsuke's Shison no Kagaku movement, right, the Science of Thought group. They produce a volume right around 1950 called Yumeto Omokage Dreams and Reminiscences or uh, Remains, you know, a book that is focused on different kinds of popular cultural phenomenon in Japan in that time. And there are two or three articles on popular song at that time. And at that point, it was called either Ryukoka or Kayokyoku, both loosely translates into popular music, featuring fairly searing critiques along these ways that that popular music was serving as essentially as an opiate for the masses, that it was a way that people coped and it was a way that people were made to be comfortable with the status quo uh, instead of actually doing anything about it. Even these kaiokyoku, or today I think we would be called enka, and Misori Hibari being the kind of the queen of enka. But yeah. when you when you think about what she's talking about, and especially a song like Kanashi Zake, the mournful sake. Yeah. And she's kind of a, a rebellious figure in her own right. Maybe, I mean, maybe we can talk about even Kayo Kyoku and Enka and popular music in the 1960s as counterculture. Right. Which on, on the surface, you'd say, well, Enka, well, this is like, you know, Japan's country Western. It's Japan's folk music. But, you know, everything that she's talking about, the longing for the countryside, feelings of loss in the face of urbanization. At this time, when everyone's moving to the cities to find jobs or go to college in the 1960s, longing for the countryside is kind of a counterculture or certainly counter mainstream sentiment. Absolutely. And in fact, I think that goes back to the kind of double-edgedness of, of the danger that at least the state or authorities perceived in popular music, right? Which is sort of eroticism or sentimentality. Those things could 
potentially be turned in a different kind of more ominous or even political ways or, or be seen as an expression of that. And I think what's interesting is that in the 1950s, late 1950s, and especially into the 1960s, there is a paradigm shift in the way in which critics or would-be critics of popular song actually begin to reframe how they think about this genre. And especially on the left, there is a kind of self-criticism or, or reframing of seeing these popular music and especially sort of ones that are deemed to sort of have more indigenous tunes, the ones that were kind of forerunners of post-war Enka, ones that were deemed to express sort of emotions, you know, of travails of modern existence, that these songs maybe actually should be taken more seriously as authentic expressions of what your average Japanese are feeling, experiencing. Uh, and so especially from the new left, uh, there's a kind of attitude that actually instead of dismissing the products of this sort of popular music industry as just inherently vulgar and inherently apolitical and unhelpful, uh, but that they should actually see these as an example of the more kind of indigenous cultural manifestation, the dochaku, right? Uh, and this is, you see that in some of the writings of Itsuki Hiroiki uh, in the 60s, you see that in the actually very create, in, in the moments of the very creation of genre of enka uh, in the late 50s, early 60s, where before actually it was deemed to be sort of the ultimate representative of traditional Japan or, or the folk in a kind of more conservative nationalist sense, there was a kind of a moment, I think, that ultimately passed, but a moment nonetheless where some in the left saw a political potential uh, for this kind of music. And, and actually, even sort of beyond the sort of political movements, actually, some sociologists like uh, Mita Munesuke uh, at Todai uh, in particular uh, have written about uh, sort of trying to understand the patterns of emotion that one can find in popular music or kaiokyoku of his time. And Mita, I think, actually was one of the first people to take it, to take these songs very seriously and in a kind of non-pejorative ways and perhaps maybe at times almost too naively, but very sort of seriously taking these songs as, and, and the fact that they were popular as expressions of mass sentiments uh, and sort of trying to analyze it through a kind of sociological lens. And that's a great point about taking the song seriously, because e even these songs that just seem saccharine, right. like Q Sakamoto's Ashtaga Aru, yeah. or e even his Ue Omuite Aruko, you know, these very catchy melodies, and you think, well, this is just you know, a candy pop song. But the anecdote behind this story is he wrote that as he was walking away from an Ampo protest in 1960, right. realizing how futile these protests were. And this is why he's trying to look up so that the tears don't fall down his face. How is it that you're bringing popular songs and pop culture into your class and what makes these such useful pedagogical tools? So I think there, yeah, there are several ways that I use these songs. I mean, I introduce them actually whenever I have an opportunity, especially, you know, in, in my classes, I either sort of survey the modern Japanese history or I teach a class on World War II in Asia. 
the fact that there are all of these materials still available, and you know, in the case of World War II, it's in some sense the first war that sort of produces this massive amount of media, right? Both visual and, in fact, audio visual media. And I oftentimes sort of use it, I guess, in in several ways. One is to try to give a sense at a sensory level of you know, for example, what the war sounded like to your average Japanese, and not not literally in, in the kind of physical sense, but what was the background music, right, to the war in Japan, or you know, to the home front in the home front in Japan, uh, and uh, you know, this is something that I touch on in the book as well. Is that you know sometimes actually the kind of soundscape of the war that wartime era, for example, was probably not exactly like what we assumed to be. I think one of those more persistent images of wartime soundscape is that it is kind of overrun by morose, serious, kind of sad gunka or, or military songs. And I think a lot of that impression actually comes from the kind of songs that ended up being popular in the post-war era when there was a kind of gunka uh, revival as uh, starting in the 1960s actually when there was a, li- a li- I think a little less of taboos around these these songs and and so you know this is the kind of songs that you hear even now when you're walking around in Tokyo or in other parts of Japan when you start to see those big all black or all white buses with the chrysanthemum crest in the front right the sound the right wing sound trucks and you know oftentimes they're kind of very again serious sad songs right but Actually, the reason why people remember these songs in the post-war era, the reason why they felt more nostalgic about these songs, uh, was oftentimes because, musically speaking, these were the songs that sort of hewed closer to the weepy, sentimental, popular songs of, of the 1930s. And in some sense, they, they were popular and they, they were remembered in the post-war era with a sense of nostalgia, Precisely because actually they were the kind of more popular, vulgar songs. And in contrast, what the state was trying to push during the wartime were songs that, if you listen to it, this, this is songs like Aikoko uh, Shinkyoku, the Patriotic March, or in my book, I have a, um, a Columbia ad for a song called Daito Kesenoda, the song of the, the final battle of Daito, right? Great East Asia. <laughs> And it's this horrible, grisly catchphrase that's written on the Columbia ad along the, along the line of Kill the British and the Americans, they are our enemy. But the actual song, musically, is this upbeat Western-style march in, in a major key. Not the kind of gunka you'd think of. Uh, and in fact, there was quite a variety of the kind of music that the state tried to promote in that context, there's another more interesting, even funny in a kind of very dark way, a song called Nandakushu, Air Raid So What? A song that came out in 1941 and featured, I think, a comedic singer by the name of Tokuyama, very popular singer at that time, who sings about, you know, Sort of, who cares? We're not scared about air raids. Uh, these are the particular ways that you can deal with, uh, you know, incendiary bombs. You just sort of put some sand on it and cover it with a wet cloth, and no problem. Uh, which is, a, by the way, a horrible advice, right? For for incendiary bombs. 
This comes out, you know, before there were any actual serious air raids on metropolitan, you know, urban Japan years before that. But it's worth noting that sort of the tune is very upbeat, kind of kids oriented. This is the same actually singer who sang the song Tonari Gumi no Uta, the song of the, the neighborhood association. Which, if you are familiar with Japanese TV from 1970s, 1980s, is the same tune of the theme song of Dorifu no Daibakusho, the drifters comedy show, which was a very popular TV show by the comedy group Drifters, including people like Ikari Atosuke, and I think Kato Chao was also part of it. It's a parody of that wartime song, so there were this, the kind of soundscape actually is much more complex, has a much more complex relationship with the West, especially, but also in terms of the emotional registers that were conveyed promoted, pushed to the people in ways that people wouldn't expect. Speaking of popular songs during the war, I mean, I Koku no Hana, for yeah. example, is one that gets very popular afterwards. Absolutely. <laughs> I think it's still very popular. Yeah, which is essentially a waltz. And I think people don't necessarily expect that. And the fact that, you know, militarism, as it manifested musically, wasn't just about these sort of dark, morose sort of songs, but oftentimes in kind of very even overtly Western guise is, I think, yeah, something that's that's worth noting. I, I wanted to mention, actually, sort of, you were talking earlier about how Maybe the kind of satirical songs or uh, social critique to whatever extent seemed to peter out in, in the 1930s and even in the early post-war era. It's not that those kind of songs are completely absent, right? So the same singer, Tokuyama, who in 1937, he sings a song called Sarariman-yo, which is, which is about the vagaries of Sarariman existence in 1930s. Japan, right? About, about uh, getting paid or not getting paid enough. And that actually, you know, if you think about it, continues into the post-war era in certain different manifestations. So, Kasagi Shizuko, right, of, of the Tokyo Boogie Woogie fame, uh, expands on the Boogie Woogie franchise by including songs like Shopping Boogie Woogie, things that express the everyday lives that she saw. And then, I think in the 1960s, you know, you start to see Ueki Hitoshi, right? His, his take on salarymen, middle-class kind of existence in, in, in post-war Tokyo. So, and those weren't songs that you know, authorities ever felt were especially problematic, but did actually nonetheless speak to realities of everyday lives, especially in urban Japan. Speaking of Tokyo Boogie Woogie specifically, I mean, this one being one that was very popular during the occupation era. When watching films like Kurosawa's contemporary day films like Drunken Angel or Stray Dog, the soundtrack for the bad guys is always jazz. Right. You know, it's always Mifune's characters who are working in in the dance hall, 
It's always had some name, like Hollywood Club or something like this. And it's easy to almost think of these as veiled references or veiled criticisms of the occupation. Yeah. Do you, do you think there's something to that or is this just because it was popular? I think there was a little bit of both of that. And I think to be able to read it as a critique of the occupation, right, or critique of Americanization, maybe it was possible to do it, you know, from the context of the kind of wartime mindset. But I think in the post-war era, it becomes something that's more of the domain of the left, right? Many of whose cr critics are increasingly concerned about the kind of cultural degradation that is being brought to Japan, not only sort of through the revival of capitalist economy and, and popular culture, but actually more directly by the presence of U.S. military bases and service personnels mingling with local Japanese and, and, and going to bars and dance halls and things like that. And so I think to some degree, there is a kind that that association, but I think it's, it's really hard, I think, to disentangle that with the kind of genuine attraction that those kind of music, jazz and dance and things like that also held right for the people. It's a very, I think, actually ambivalent product, which is why on the one hand, I think most sort of nostalgic remembrance of Tokyo Woogie Woogie is positive, right? As, as a symbol of post-war liberation, not just of musically speaking or culture speaking, but of, of physicality, right? Of sexuality, etc. But at that time, for example, one, you know, leftist critic, Sono Besaburo, writes with concern that, you know, is the liberation that you see in Kasagi Shizuko a true liberation? Is it, you know, is it one that is actually will only serve to enslave people to the capital in, in the end? So I think there is that, that ambivalence, I think, throughout that period. There's one that I I always use to kind of put into context this film by Mizoguchi mm. uh, called Yoru no Onnatachi, or Women of the Night, yeah, yeah. which has this very famous line, Konna onna ni dare ga shita. Oh, right. You know, who made me this kind of woman? Konna onna ni dare ga shita. Which even goes on to become its own film. But, you know, this film told from the perspective of you know, a nightwalker, a streetwalker, a prostitute, uh, which, again, I think we could kind of see as somewhat of a veiled criticism of prostitution in general, but also of the occupation policies and the kind of downtrodden economy at the time that forced yes. many of these women into prostitution. Absolutely. And the other one that comes to mind, Ringo no Uta. Again, yes. another one of these that seems on the surface very just innocent and simple. Right. And then there's this great film uh, from 64, I believe, by Suzuki Seijin called Nikutai no Mon, where he right. has each of the women singing Ningo no Uta. It gives it a much more kind of suggestive, yeah. uh, highlights how, how this song has a much more suggestive capability. Yes, and actually I think that was true even uh, in the immediate aftermath of that song coming out because... Uh, and I think I put this in, in my book as well. Uh, there's this wonderful parody of the song, right, that, that comes out reportedly on the streets shortly after the, the movie 
comes out, and one that doesn't just think about you know ringo as some,、uh, the apple is something that's cute, right? Kawaii a ringo, but as an object of desire from the hungry observers, right? And, and as a symbol, not of this sort of you know innocent sentimentality or freedom from sort of the wartime stringency, but actually as a very visible symbol of the immediate post-war era deprivation and, and material lack and hunger and and, and things like that. And so I think these songs have multiple ways, actually, of being used and of of, of being deployed. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts (ISIT). Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series, by visiting our website, MeijiAt150.Arts.UBC.CA. Thank you for listening.